It's the last episode of The Name of the Wind! Yep, well, the last official episode of Name of the Wind. We got one more coming after. I know, but that's not the point. The point <laughs> is that this is the last of our read-through episodes. Short chapter, short epilogue, end old book. All right, you ready to jump in? All right. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 47, Amor Vincent Omnia, where we will be looking at chapter 92 and the epilogue of The Name of the Wind through the lens of hidden motives. Yay! So do you want to take one last very brief explanation? Very brief is subjective. This is the very, 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 very end of the first book that we are reading for this podcast. If this is your first episode, welcome. We really do appreciate all of our listeners and hope that you enjoy listening to the last tiny bit of The Name of the Wind. But if you would like to maybe understand anything about what we are going to talk about, episode one might be a really good place to start. But if you really want to start at the end, that's fine. You might want an explanation of our podcast. Each week we will be examining a section of the book in the name of the wind. Well, this is the last one. So starting next time, different book. Anyway, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. So before we begin, let's get our disclaimers out of the way. First of all, as always, we continue to remain unaffiliated with Patrick Rothfuss and his publisher, Daw Books, though we don't have any objections if that were to change. Secondly, our discussions naturally assume familiarity with the books, so here be spoilers. For the last 10 pages. Right. I mean, maybe you want to eat your dessert first. I can't blame you there. <laughs> We're adults, we can have our dessert first and maybe never our vegetables, and that would be very, very terrible for our health. You can have ice cream for dinner. You can. We're not going to tell you not to. It's not our place. I'm not your dad. Finally, as a word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we won't stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. And so with that out of the way, we got to start things off with our final 45-second recap it's your turn, Phoenix. Let me get the timer going. All right. In three, two, one, go. Quoth shoots Chronicler and Bast off to their respective beds and finishes cleaning up the common room. Up in his room, Chronicler takes off his bandage, why, I wonder, and then locks his door and pushes the chest of drawers against the door for good measure. But leaves the window open? What? Predictably, Bast still gets into the room to threaten Chronicler should he encourage Quoth to dwell on anything unhappy, and then Bast leaves through the window. The book ends much like it began, a three-part silence and the cut flower sound of a man who is waiting to die. 28.72 seconds. Woot! No raspberries for you. I have robbed our audience of a final punishment. Uh, don't worry. You'll have plenty of opportunity next season. 
four in the interlude. I don't know how we're going to play that. If anyone listening has any suggestion on what pieces of our normal podcast you'd like us to keep and what things you might want to see us add, let us know. We're on Twitter at WaystonePod. We're also on Instagram at WaystonePod. It's not hard to find us. Nope. All right. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and talk about the hidden motives of our cast. The thing starts off with Chronicler going back to bed. Being shooed back to bed. It actually starts off with Quoth taking the time to clean up everything in the common room. It seems like a pretty tedious way of life. It does. He plays the innkeeper pretty well. He asks if Chronicler needs anything before he goes to bed. He cleans up and then goes to check the lamps and finds that he never actually lit them. Not sure about that one. Did he light them and somebody else put them out? Or is this just what happened that day? I think he was actually so caught up in telling the story that he didn't get his normal evening routine in. I like that we get a tease from Pat about what's coming up in the next book. My journey to Alvaron's court, learning to fight from the Adem, Valorian. And those are things that we'll get a little more in-depth on, and some people will probably have some rather audible eye-rolling happening during the Valorian section. Perhaps also the Adem section. Yeah. There's room for eye-rolling in any of this. There's a sentence here that kind of explains Pat to a T. Go on. I need time to think about tomorrow's story. Yeah, I caught that one as well. And he says, these things don't plan themselves, you know. I think that's the writing process in general. I agree. It is not nearly as easy to write as people seem to think it is. Some people are prolific and can continue to pump out stories. Stephen King... Brandon Sanderson, but it doesn't work that way for everyone. And even the ones who are incredibly prolific are also doing a lot of work on the planning side to make sure that their stories are coherent. It's not easy. Quoth even locks the inn and thinks about it for a second and leaves the key so that Chronicler can get out in the morning. He sweeps the floor, he washes the tables, and last... He polishes his bottles, and he does not hum or whistle or sing. This is very clearly called out. The bottles are an interesting thing. I kind of have a theory about them. Go on. I think that each of these bottles contain memories of people and events from his past. It's almost like a sympathetic tie. And I'm not sure exactly how it works, but there does seem to be something of him in the way that he polishes these. He seems to linger on these bottles in ways that he doesn't over any other part of the inn. I'm not sure if it's just a thematic thing or if it's a literal thing. We do know at least one of the bottles had something that smelled like strawberry. Which we can intuit is probably a Denna thing. Yeah. Bast also refers to one of them as smelling like elderberries. And I'm curious where that comes in. The lightning tree, I think he does a little rhyme pointing at each of the bottles. And I don't remember it off the top of my head. And 
Unfortunately for me, I only have that one in audiobook format, so I can't go back and reference it right now. I believe it's Maple, Maple, Cash and Carry, Ash and Elm, Elderberry. Okay, I have a walking memory bank <laughs> right in front of me. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Did you go looking that up? No. No, you just remember? Yeah. You don't? No. That's not how my brain works. <laughs> All right. Audience, please let us know if that's actually right. I mean, the sad thing is all of the other things that I forget, that's what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> now we get to Chronicler. Yeah. So Chronicler goes up to bed, and the first thing he does is he locks the door behind him. Which, I mean, you're staying in an inn. That's generally sensible. Like, I do that at the Holiday Inn. I do that anywhere. I'm going to put lie to your memory. It's not the first thing he does. It's like the fifth thing he does. <laughs> well, crap. <laughs> <laughs> he puts his finished pages in the wooden chest of drawers. He cleans his pens and sets them out to dry. He removes the bandage on his shoulder and threw away the foul-smelling thing. And it's in the chamber pot with the lid on now. And I don't know why. Because it seems like Bast just put that poultice on. Wasn't that long ago, certainly. Long enough for Quoth to tell us what the events of the last couple chapters were, but I don't think it was necessarily ready to come off. And then he washes his shoulder. He looks out the window at basically blackness and opens it a crack. And he tries to go to bed before he's so restless in, let me just say, I would really like it if my bed sheets smelled like lavender. But in his lavender scented bed that he gets up and locks the door. He tries to go back to bed and then he shoves the wooden chest of drawers up against the door to keep it more securely locked. It'd be a damn shame if the door swung out instead of in. <laughs> it would. <laughs> that is such a funny point. <laughs> An ineffectual barricade is one of the funniest things in my mind, so... Under over on whether or not Bass just came in through the door. I mean, usually doors open inwards, but I think it would be just one of those weird little... <laughs> <sighs> moving on. Yeah, so moving on, he finally sinks to sleep, only for Bass to wake him up. Would you want Bass to just wake you up by... It seems almost like he was smothering Chronicler with a pillow because <laughs> there was something soft on Chronicler's face. So it's either a pillow <laughs> or like Bast's hand. I mean, this really just reaffirms my association of Bast with a cat. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you finally get things the way you want and you're just drifting off to sleep and then a cat disturbs you. 
puts its paw on your face, yeah. <laughs> licks your head. Yeah, this is just cat behavior. Fun fact, Leela does that all the time. She will lick your beard, she'll lick your hair, she'll lick my hair. Do you know which one of our cats has hairballs? Yep. When we first met this cat, she belonged to a friend of ours. And they had just had a baby. And Leela sat there and just groomed the baby's head. Yeah, she is a gentle soul, but she can also be incredibly disruptive when she wants to be. And a little stupid. Yeah, that too. But we love her anyway. I kind of love this exchange between Chronicler and Bast because even as Bast is being kind of scary here, he has time to undercut it with little things like, wait, hawks don't have ears? <laughs> 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 I think that underscores that even as he has this darker side, there is an almost childlike sense of wonder about him. Bast is an imp. He's mercurial. <laughs> Bast, of course, is snuck in and is trying to make sure that Chronicler doesn't cry out and wake Quoth, who has ears like a hawk. Except hawks don't have ears, yes. He even comments on how <laughs> the uh, heavy chest of drawers being shoved in front of the door <laughs> shows a certain lack of trust. Better not have scraped the floors. So even as Bast really just wants his Reshi to go back to normal, he's also aware that the floors being scraped would distress Kvothe beyond belief. I mean, that takes a lot of work to clean up. And Bast is probably the one who'd be stuck doing the work, too. Yeah, but he seems to almost be affectionate towards Kvothe's quirks. Yeah, and I think that affection is something that belies his deeper motives. And even as he tries humor and bluster and menace to get his way, really hide what is at heart a gentler soul. And then we find out that the whole reason that Chronicler is even here, even new to look for Quoth here, is because Bast engineered it. Yep, turns out it was Bast that was leaking stories to drunken wagoneers and the like. Sending out his little messages in a bottle. I'm curious what other ones he sent out as well. Me too. And I wonder what the specific rumor was that attracted Chronicler's attention. Would be nice to know. Bast is concerned because Quoth is practically fading into the woodwork here. This place is killing him. I agree. And I think it still plays into my former theory, current theory, that Quoth, by renaming himself as Coat, is a different person. And that different person is slowly smothering the real Quoth. We see him dying a little bit every time he stops what he's doing to go about some menial chores. His music goes away. His magic goes away. And it's gone away for so long that it may not be able to come back. It's here, I think, that Bass drops one of the central conceits of the book, which is the mask we wear shapes who we are. And the stories that we tell about ourselves in our heads 
affect who we are and how we act. We all become what we pretend to be. Like I think about the stories that I used to tell about myself when I was a kid and how those stories have changed as I've aged. So when I was a kid, I was a paleontologist in training. Then I was going to be an astronaut. Then I was going to be a pilot. Then I was going to be a photographer for National Geographic. Then I was going to be a journalist. Then I was going to be an astronomer. Then I was going to be a philosopher. Then I was going to be a technical writer. Then I was going to be an IT specialist. And here I am. I don't tell myself the same stories I told 10 years ago. And it's changed the way I view myself and the way I view my relationship with the rest of the world. And I think that's okay. I'm okay with the story I tell myself. I like the story I tell myself. At the same time, it does change my perspective on how do I act? How do I perceive the world around me? What are the things that are appropriate actions? What are the things that are inappropriate reactions given the story I'm telling? And we can see here that Kvothe has dramatically shifted the story that he's told himself about himself. He's no longer telling himself that he is this storytelling, singing, magic-wielding hero of legend. He's telling himself that he's an innkeeper. And so far as it goes, there is nothing inherently wrong with being an innkeeper. In fact, one of the things that we've seen throughout this book is that innkeepers are consistently among the kindest and wisest of the people that he meets. So there is definitely something there that I think he latched onto, but I also don't think it's him. Bast even says, that story makes you what you are. We build ourselves out of that story. Now he sees himself as an innkeeper. I kind of get the sense that for someone who has caused so much change within the greater world, he maybe needed to be Kvothe, the hero, as opposed to Cote, the innkeeper, for the world to continue on. I think the world maybe needs Kvothe more than it needs Cote. I also think Bast, specifically, needs Kvothe to be Kvothe. There's a sense that Kvoth is the person that Bast loves, that Bast has a deep affection for, and Cote is just kind of a taskmaster. Bast has even tried to get Kvoth to write a memoir, and it worked for a day. I think this is another insight into Pat's head. Something happened. The next day he read what he had written and went into one of his darker moods. Claimed the whole thing was the worst idea he ever had. And then he crumpled the papers up and just left them on his desk. For months. Right, and they're still there. It's a melancholic feeling. And the disconnect between Kvothe, who initially introduces himself as one of the Edimaru, someone who is in connection with the very lifeblood of all stories, who knows every story that was ever told. To not be able to do some writing for more than a day, that has to be something that plays against that story that he tells himself. That cognitive dissonance can be incredibly painful. 
Chronicler seems to be a little clueless as to why Bast would ask him not to collect the entire truth as Quoth wants to recount it. Why Bast is so adamant that Chronicler not dwell on the bad things and only encourage good memories. And it really doesn't matter to Bast if Chronicler understands the why. Bast is going to make Chronicler do this, whether Chronicler wants to or not. And Bast uses the tactic of instilling fear rather than trying to instill understanding. I was not a fan of that particular choice. And I think Chronicler comes around more, not from the fear, but once he understands what drives that intense reaction from Bast. When Bast says, I want my Reshi back, we don't know what Reshi means, but we do know that Bast cares deeply about Kvothe and wants that person back in his life. And maybe more than wants, needs. As we'll see in Wise Man's Fear, Chronicler and Bast's relationship evolves into something I think a little more interesting than just sort of this I own you, I control you thing that Bast is trying to pull off here. Chronicler says, I'm not going to be your order taker. Let me do my job and you'll get what you want. <laughs> I think part of that is also because Chronicler, as much as he's recognizing Bast's need here, also knows that all of the, quote, good stuff doesn't happen without the bad stuff. As we've seen, Kvothe the hero is just as shaped by trauma as he is by triumph. You know, those traumas aren't necessarily defining, but they are things that he's learned lessons from, for good or ill. They make him human, and they're what make the story work. I think finding the way to balance all of that is the storyteller's challenge. And it's the historian's challenge. I think Chronicler maybe appreciates that more than Bast understands in the moment. And then just as quickly, Bast puts his mask back on again. He also says, I've been gone too long. Gone from where? Who would notice? And he goes out the window. <laughs> but beforehand asks if he can bring Chronicler a nightcap or more blankets ever the gracious host learning from his master. Definitely a cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bass just waves as he goes out of the window. <sighs> as if that's the way he goes in and out every day. And to our epilogue, the Waystone Inn lay in silence. We have three silences, the hollow echoing quiet made by things that were lacking, a man huddled in his deep, sweet-smelling bed, motionless and waiting for sleep. So the thing that's interesting about that one, we compare that also with the patient cut flower sound of a man waiting to die, and then we have this motionless sound of a man waiting to sleep. Sleep is oftentimes viewed as a cousin of death. Or the brother of death. The two are viewed as related but different. I think that parallel is intentional. At the beginning, 
There's the hollow, echoing quiet made by things that were lacking. And a pair of men huddled in one corner of the bar. They drank with quiet determination, avoiding serious discussions of troubling news. In doing so, they added a small, sullen silence to the larger, hollow one. It made an alloy of sorts, a counterpoint. In the epilogue, chroniclers wide-eyed, motionless silence added a small, frightened silence to the larger, hollow one. They made an alloy of sorts, a harmony. So who do you suspect those two men were? Are those Bast and Quoth, or other people? I don't know, but you mentioned them at the beginning of the entire podcast. Do you have a theory? I'm not sure. It almost sounds like they could be just two of the regular denizens of the inn, part of the normal felling night crowd that isn't really a crowd. They drank with quiet determination makes me think that they're not Bast and Kvothe. That doesn't sound like the two of them. Or the interactions that they have together when no one else is looking. Much like the beginning, the third silence was Kvothe's, or Coates. But in this case, I think it is Kvothe's. Because the man had true red hair, red as flame. His eyes were dark and distant. The last paragraph is beautiful. The waystone was his, just as the third silence was his. This was appropriate as it was the greatest silence of the three, wrapping the others inside itself. It was deep and wide as autumn's ending. It was heavy as a great river smooth stone. It was the patient cut flower sound of a man who is waiting to die. And that is the same as what the last sentence of the prologue was. I really appreciate the symmetry here. I agree. And I think it also represents something of a shift that we're seeing from the beginning to the end. It's who is our protagonist when no one is around? At the beginning of the book, when no one is around, he doesn't take off that mask at all. He is just coat and it's dead and dying. By the end of the book, there's no one else around, and he is Kvothe. And I think that's what Bast is trying to reawaken here. And we're curious to see what it's going to be like, because the business of taking off a mask and letting yourself stretch beyond what had previously been your limits is not an easy thing. It's not a continuous upward march of progress. There's ups and downs, backslides, and stalls. So I am curious to see how he progresses. And I believe with that, we're ready to talk about our Frenemos. It is your turn this time. Yep, we're going to go full circle here. Considering that our first episode was your first Frenemos, I'm kind of curious to see, because I think we have the same people available. Maybe minus Chronicler, but... So this time out, I chose Bast as my Frenemos here. So hear me out. This has everything to do with the price of butter. So while I'm not a fan of the way he strong arms and manipulates Chronicler, he manages to hit on some important truths. In some ways, he kind of reminds me of the kid in The Princess Bride who just wants to skip to the good parts. 
Is there going to be kissing? Murdered by pirates is good. <laughs> but he really does hit on the fact that masks shape us and who we pretend to be around others really does play a role in who we become. He's reminding us to be thoughtful about the masks we wear, specifically the ones we choose to wear, and the stories that we choose to tell ourselves about ourselves. And throughout all of that, he can't help but undercut that air of menace with bits of genuine childlike curiosity. Like, the bit about hawks don't have ears, that part just cracks me up. <laughs> what do you mean hawks don't have ears? <laughs> they don't? <laughs> I think that they have some form of something that is at least an ear canal. Yeah, it's an internal thing as opposed to like the big external fleshy ear lens thing. Ear lens? That's probably not the right word, but that's all I could think of at the instant. That's adorable. And I think the final thing I want to talk about is he underscores the importance of showing versus telling. Specifically when he talks about how we talk about other people. It's not enough for us to just tell them that they are valuable. We have to show them that they are valuable because that is what influences the stories that they tell about themselves. So if we tell someone that they are a valuable member of society, that they make our lives better, etc., that's all well and good up to a point, but it doesn't fundamentally shape them the way showing them does. So if you show someone that they matter, if you show someone in your thoughts, your actions, your words, how you treat them, that they matter, they internalize that, and that in turn shapes the way that they act. And I think that's really a deep truth that we can all do with learning. So that was my thought there. I think when your choices are between Quoth, who has almost nothing to do in this chapter, Chronicler, who I think is playing dumb and bass to actually has some little nuggets of wisdom sprinkled throughout this little chapter. I think bass is your choice. Yeah. And so now that we've taken to heart the lessons of Aristotle, let's take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin and learn an interesting fact of the week. I believe it's your turn. Your final chance to avoid raspberries. My final chance of this book. We are continuing the podcast. We are not stopping the podcast. It just will go to every other week after next week. We're going to do our episode one revisit redo next week. And then after that, we'll be reading through the Starless Sea as an interlude between the name of the wind and the wise man's fear. Because we've been doing this for a year and I need a break on that one. So we're going to go to every other week and be a little less granular. Now that I have reiterated, restated, and otherwise repeated myself from previous pods, it is time to get into the interesting fact. So I've seen a lot of people celebrating the fact that starting in January, there will once again be pets in the White House. Joe Biden will be bringing along his two German shepherds, Champ and Major, and as a bonus fact, Major will be the first dog in the White House to have been adopted from a shelter as opposed to purebred. But they're just the latest in a long line of presidential pets. So today I'm going to share with you some of the varied and interesting pets of Theodore Roosevelt. Two Shetland ponies. Their names were Algonquin and General Grant. 
two carriage horses, which I don't know if you can consider them pets because they had a purpose that wasn't just bring me joy. Their names were General and Judge. They had a pig named Mame or Meme, I'm not sure, but it was named for his children's nurse. The kids named it. I think they thought it was a compliment and I don't think that their nurse thought it was a compliment. <laughs> they had what was described as a herd of guinea pigs. No individual names given in the list that I found. A lizard named Bill. A badger named Josiah. A blue macaw named Eli Yale. Fun fact, what is now the West Wing of the White House used to be a greenhouse. And that's where the blue macaw lived. They also had a flying squirrel, two kangaroo rats, and Jonathan the piebald rat. There was also a snake called Emily Spinach, Peter the rabbit. Not a very original name, but still cute. They had a one-legged rooster that doesn't have a name listed. A Pekingese named Manchu that liked to dance on its hind legs. A bull terrier named Pete that was known to be a bit destructive. A rat terrier named Skip. A Chesapeake Bay retriever named Sailor Boy. And a St. Bernard named Rollo that was given to Roosevelt as a gift from a friend, even though Roosevelt had said that he didn't want a puppy that would eventually grow into a giant dog. They had a Manchester Terrier named Blackjack and a kitten named Tom Quartz that didn't really get along well with Blackjack. But those aren't the ones that piqued my interest. <laughs> the fact that we've gone this long and we're only now getting to the ones that piqued your interest. <laughs> they had a bear named Jonathan Edwards that had been sent to them by some of his supporters from West Virginia, and it was named by those supporters' children. A bear. <laughs> and what else? They had a lion named Joe. And the thing that made me actually look up this list, they had a hyena that was named Bill that was allowed to live in the White House and beg for scraps at the dinner table. Eventually... Hyena Bill and Joe the Lion went to go live in the National Zoo. But for a while there, there was a hyena in the White House at the turn of the 20th century. So, I mean, I didn't know any of this, but all of this is in keeping with what I've learned about Teddy Roosevelt in my study of history, which is that the man did nothing in half measures. <laughs> <laughs> And I just imagine this endless parade of animals coming into his house, brought in by various kids, grandkids, family members, and he's like, fine, but you're taking care of it. But nonetheless, all of the animal maintenance duties, no doubt, probably fell to him, like any dad. <laughs> so, was that interesting? Yes, yes it was. That's pretty hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And if that wasn't enough, no. <laughs> I have to imagine that by the end, his least favorite phrase was, Dad, can we keep him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Consider your raspberries averted. Yay! <laughs> All right, so now we come to our final seven words from The Name of the Wind. I had a number of choices today. 
They include, that should do for now, I imagine, a foundation of story to build upon, I'll take care of the cleaning up, these things don't plan themselves, you know, that shows a certain lack of trust, like I said, we need to talk, out of curiosity, which rumor was it? Could some wagon herder get me drunk? He was my message in a bottle. You just don't understand what's going on. Now people see him as an innkeeper. Now he sees himself as an innkeeper. So you're saying I work for you? Do not mistake me for my mask. And then the one I actually chose. We build ourselves out of that story. I like it. It just seemed like that was the one that really tied into both the themes that we were talking about today and then also the broader theme of this book. And if you wanted to look for a thesis sentence, I think this is the one. And you have our seven words from life, do you not? I do. Let's hear them. It's time to take a short break. Now, who said that? Me. <laughs> right now. <laughs> words of wisdom right there. Now, part of that is in March, I had about five weeks of edited episodes kind of in a little storage bank of they're going to release on time. Everything's good. If I miss a day or two of editing, not a big deal. And now I have to get the one that I just edited done and mixed and put up on Patreon the same week that I am editing it. And I do not like this. So while you and I are going to continue recording every week, I'm releasing them every two weeks so that I can catch up because things like Christmas are coming up and we are expected at your parents and I am not sitting on a couch editing podcasts the whole week that we are there. Yeah, that's probably going to be more fun. Yeah, I love our audience. I really do. I hope that you enjoy our little interlude episodes. The book's about 500 pages, but we are definitely not taking a year to do it. I don't know how many episodes we're going to wind up doing of it, but it's so that we can read kind of a cotton candy book for a while and then deep dive into The Wise Man's Fear and still be able to give you all our attention, our details, our insight, such as it is without feeling burnt out. It'll be a fun little journey, and I hope you'll enjoy it. But as a reminder, next week is the redo, redux, revisit, reiteration of episode one, because we think it will be fun to go back to our origins and improve upon them. You decide. Well, with that, I want to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week and then enjoy your little break. Take a breather. Have some fun. Go back and listen to any of your favorite episodes and tweet at us to let us know what you liked the most. And we'll see you in the Starless Sea. We'd like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please pop on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, 
where you can get early access to our episodes, access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! I'm mad at airplane. I'm mad at airplane.